Welcome, gentle listeners, to the Daily Nightly, a Jane Austen journey, where we'll be reading the collective works of Austen and exploring her influence in pop culture. We are your humble servants. I'm Annie. And I am Jessie. And today we are diving into chapter 16 through 20 of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. Yay. <laughs> no, when I, I looked, there's not a ton of pages this section, and so no. I was a little let down, but then I feel like there's a lot to talk about in only these, like, 40 pages. Indeed. And I did not actually – I should have probably expected where it was going, but at the same time, still still pretty good surprises. Yeah, we did talk about the play, and I think both of us thought that it wouldn't happen, mm-hmm. but the the downfall of the play was a lot more amusing, I think, than I originally anticipated, so – yeah, it felt very kind of like British farce almost. But um, before we dive into that, and I know you want to too, um, <laughs> it's been a little, it's been a hot second since we've been able to to get together and just chat books. So what are you getting into right now? Yeah, so I've read a few books since we last spoke, but my favorite is a book that I finished almost immediately after we spoke last so i've been dying to talk about it ever since uh it's called Legendborn by tracy dion and it is so good uh it's a fantasy ya book of course and um it's about a 16 year old girl named brie matthews who starts in an early college program at unc chapel hill and it seems like a really good escape for her uh after her mother passes away in a car accident Mm -hmm. And so she arrives on campus and stumbles upon, of course, a secret society of, quote, legendborn that hunt <laughs> demon-like creatures. And she uh, she corrals an exiled legendborn named Nick, who is very cute, and infiltrates the group and ends up attracting the attention of the group's mage, a handsome but ruthless, quote, Merlin named Selwyn, who is also very cute. Uh, the, the legendborn were revealed to be descendants of Arthur, as in King Arthur and his round table. And Bree starts to realize that her own past is entangled with them as she begins to question everything. Uh, this book has everything. I was hooked from page one. Uh, it has a, a ton of the fantasy tropes that I love. And I'm sort of somewhat tired of, you know, like chosen one girl, love triangle, mm-hmm. demon demon fighting. And it makes it feel just very fresh and exciting. It's Arthurian mythology meets African mythology. And it also deals with generational grief and trauma mm. in in ways that I'm, I'm just still thinking about. In fact, I'm in a discord to talk about this book because it's so good and not enough people are talking about it. Uh, it's just... <laughs> incredibly inclusive too. Brie is a black female protagonist. There's an LGBTQ love triangle. And the representation in this book is just really casual, but also meaningful. Uh, There's a non-binary character who's introduced and that's just it. They they introduce their pronouns and that's it. It's just really simple. And they're like a very well-rounded, just great character. And, and Brie navigates this new fantasy world that just upends everything she knows while also having to deal with racism and microaggressions and just everything that you might anticipate with her being the only black member of this very, very white uh, secret society. Uh, and I just, I can't wait to read the next book. I'll, I'll read anything she writes. Um, I just really want a lot of people to read this book because uh, they can talk about it with me. It's just really great if you like our. If you like any fantasy, if you like our King Arthur stuff, which I know you do, Annie, yeah, uh, <laughs> um, check this book out. Is there's there's a ball in it, so just anything that an Austin lover would like. There's that kind of stuff as well as demons. So yeah, hopefully that's a good enough pitch for you. 
oh, it's more than a good enough pitch. It sounds extremely up my alley. I'm only lamenting all the other books I have wanted to read for this year because I really want to add this. Um, I mean, let's face it, I probably will. I basically read everything you tell me to. It just takes me a while to get there. Well, you've read a ton of really good stuff that I want to read or that I have read. So we're, yeah. we're, we're both doing pretty well, I think. Pretty good. Well, like, again, like the book influencer that you are, I finally have gotten around to Talia Hibbert's uh, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, and I've already Uh, recommended to a couple other people at work. It's so extremely easy to read. I love Chloe, just her trying to have a life and doing it in list form and also being like a big mess, but not really. But also, yes, uh, my heart just completely goes out for her. And also Red is, um, he's he's a very attractive, wonderful man. We'll wait till you meet the love interest in the in the second book. Uh, he's uh, Zafir is very great. Uh, I just read the her last brown sister book, uh, Actor Age, Eva Brown. And um, anyway, it was <laughs> phenomenal. I think they get better as they go on, and it it has one of like the hottest smut scenes that I've ever read in a book. So read all of them now that you've read Chloe. Yes, uh, I mean like that. It starts at such a great level already just has me anticipating everything else i realized that i never read crested cows how to treat how to steal a dragon sword which is the ninth book in the how to train your dragon series it's one of my favorite audiobook series david Tennant does all the voices and they're amazing they're wonderful they're slightly they're significantly different from the book from the movies which are also great um just different and they're one of my just general comfort reads and listens as far as the books go, and I highly recommend them. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, and I'm recognizing that the series is finally almost finished or has finished, and I'm just really behind. It's a joy. Would recommend. I have recommended it. I reread Ali Brosh's Hyperbully and a Half because it's just a great book. And I forgot how how relatable it was in so many ways, just the anxiety, the depression, just finding humor and everything and just being a weird kid. It's just so nice to meet other weird kids, even if you meet it through the book that they wrote and you're not meeting them in person. I started reading, I'm, I think I mentioned it before, I'm very slowly getting through Nettie Okorafor's Binti Home, the second book in the Binti series. It's, I'm not great with sequels. I'm sort of terrible at it, but I really enjoy the character and the different take in the sort of same thing that you were talking about, the the chosen one kind of situation. And from the very get-go, it was not at all what I expected. And I'm really excited to get back into it once I stop getting distracted, which is just who I am as a person. I did take a break from that to read two things. The first one being Rachel Verona Coates' Too Much, uh, How Victorian Constraints Still Bind Women Today, which is probably the first nonfiction book I have read in forever, which is kind of amazing. Someone who knows the author was reading this book and apparently was just like three-fourths of the way going, this seems like a very Annie book. Uh, and he gave it to me and I felt so incredibly seen. It's... Uh, I know. You're like when the someone gives you like a book gift and you're like, this actually hits just right. And it's a, a book by a Victorian lit scholar. It's It's also mildly autobiographical. And it just talks about, you know, being someone being a woman who is, quote, quote, too much for this world, too emotional or too into their female relationships or too horny or too crazy and how the world kind of looks down on it, on on that kind of thing in a woman. And she'll talk about 
what's her name, Bertha Mason in Jane Eyre, who was too sex and too black for Mr. Rochester, but at the same time still tied to like how we see Britney Spears and how Lana Del Rey is like the right amount of crazy for a white lady. So that was pretty good. That was a lot of fun and a nice break, I guess, from from fiction world, which is preferable to the real world still. <laughs> but above all those things, above all oh, those God. things, you can probably ignore everything else I just said because none of that's important. Great books in normal circumstances would be super excited for any single one of them. But I am a lucky girl. <laughs> and um, at the same time, one of my friends who's on the marketing team for Casey McQuiston's One Last Stop uh, was able to get her hands on a ARC for me. And Ned Galley, also incredibly generous, um, bestowed upon me a free copy of the book, an advanced copy of the book, in exchange for a, a, an unbiased review. Oh, guys. Hey. I read... <laughs> I read Red, White, and Royal Blue because of you in the first place. Again, you are the the only book influencer <laughs> that I need in my life. And I regretted literally nothing about any second I spent on that book. So the anticipation for One Last Stop, which I think is coming out in June, um, mm-hmm. is, is at a peak. And I didn't know what to expect from it. I knew it was going to be funny. I knew it was going to be touching. I knew it was going to be sexy. I knew it was going to be irreverent in a in a loving charming kind of way i knew it was gonna be inclusive i knew it was gonna be just all these things i didn't actually expect it to be what it was i love me some not completely logical time travel love stories apparently Ugh, hold on i just need to collect myself guys (laughs) i when annie told me she got a copy of this book i i was actually speechless like i (laughs) People say that, you know, oh, my God, I'm speechless. But, like, I actually had, like, the speech, like, ripped from myself. <laughs> I, I totally understand because I had the same feeling and I had that twice of, like, I get to I get to read this now. I Who let me have this? If it couldn't be me, I'm glad it could be Annie. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, um, the book is about this, um, this, like, 20-something, young 20-something trying to find herself. She moves to New York. She's kind of a loner she's got a complicated relationship with her mother etc etc she ends up falling in love with a woman that she meets on the train turns out this woman's from 1978 just love and weird nostalgia and the complications that happen when you fall in love with someone who is in a completely different timeline than you are and along the way you know you 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 just completely fall in love with august who who i probably relate to to an almost uncomfortable degree in how she relates to people around her and her relationship with her mother and to the family that she finds or who sort of like find her and build themselves around her and you know you get missing persons mystery and pancakes and drag queens and like really 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 good love scenes yes and just pancakes and drags yes they are linked (laughs) and it's just so it's just a really lovely book about love and uh, loss and um, yeah, there's just a lot of emotion happening, and I have a lot of feelings about it. And I occasionally just kind of keep going back on all these quotes that are just so beautifully written. And uh, <laughs> yes, so if you're watching Lost, also for the first time, along with the storm of spoilers podcast that many of our friends currently are and may be listening to this, there are some spoilers. <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, this is a little warning. 
um, which is not something I expected. But as someone who doesn't care about a lot of spoilers, I thought it was hilarious. It'll be worth it. It'll be fine. Or on the fifth season anyway. It's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. I don't. I don't think you have to worry too much. It was just really funny. Anyways. <laughs> the book comes out June 1st for uh, The Mere Mortals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I did. I, I forgot it came out that later in the year. So I apologize for my humble bragging, but. We'll revisit it when it's about to come out in, in real time. But I've yeah. never heard you talk about a book like this ever. And you talk <laughs> about books like all the time together. So this is going to okay. be great. Maybe we should bring some friends onto the show. We can have a special episode just for one last stop. We'll relate yeah. it to Jane. It'll be great. Like Kate, well, and then we'll watch Kate and Leopold. Yes, we'll do a little uh, rom com bonus. Maybe it's our pod. We get to do what we want. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Anyways, now that my heart is slightly slowing down to its normal pace, maybe we can talk about the show, <laughs> this book, without we've dedicated a whole podcast to. Yes, absolutely. Mansfield Park. Okay. I'll, I'll give Annie a, a break to uh, calm down <laughs> and come back to herself. Uh, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of, of the previously on uh, while Annie collects herself. Is that okay? I mean, I'm going to try. Okay. Well, hopefully. Let's see. All right. So previously in Mansfield Park, a play is coming to Mansfield. In anticipation of his father returning from being abroad, the younger Thomas Beecham arrives back at Mansfield Park. It is quite a different Mansfield than the one from before he left, and one filled with many romantic entanglements. The woman who was previously interested in him, the charming and beautiful Mary Crawford, is now much more interested in his younger brother, Edmund, much to the latent jealousy of our protagonist, Fanny. The Bertram sisters are still entranced with Henry Crawford, despite Maria's all but engagement to the boring Mr. Rushfield. Tom does not come home empty-handed, but with the arrival of his friend, Yates, a dull man who constantly talks about all of his acting. Inspired by Yates, Tom proposes that they put on a play at Mansfield, and the idea is embraced by all but Fanny and Edmund. The group decides to put on Lover's Vow, a fairly scandalous play. However, Mm. big personalities and smaller roles are getting in between our Mansfield Park occupants. Will they be able to work together and put on this play? Tune in to find out. (laughs) Do they put on the play? Uh, Well, funny you should ask. (laughs) So, in chapter 16 through 20... Here's what happens. So Fanny finds comfort and solace in the East Room the next morning, still upset about the events from the night before, especially Tom trying to bully her into the play. That's where Edmund finds her to ask her opinion on playing Aunt on his playing. That's where Edmund finds her to ask her opinion on his playing Anhalt in the play because as much as he disapproves of it, he's really protective of the family, too protective to allow them to have a near stranger come in to play the part. That Anhalt is the love interest against Mary Crawford's character, Agatha, probably doesn't play a part in that decision. He brings up how kind Mary was to Fanny the night before, and while Fanny agrees, she's also now too jealous to let herself be talked into joining the play. Get it, girl. Spite. Love it. Uh, Tom and Mary are thrilled Edmund agreed to join the play, but they keep their smugness to themselves, and Mary, too, is very happy. Mrs. Grant takes the part that Fanny would have played, and she 
Fanny, starts to feel a little FOMO. Until she sees what a mess everything is. Tom thinks the painter is too slow. Yates hates everyone's performances, like he's disappointed in Harry. Tom speaks too quickly. Mrs. Grant is enjoying herself too much. Edmund is too late or slow. Rush Rushworth is just miserable. And no one wants to rehearse with him. Julia... Finally unable to deny Henry's feelings for Mariah in spite of her own, for him, mopes and flirts with Yates, who sucks as a human. Mary and Mrs. Grant are also both really disappointed in their brother for playing with both sisters' emotions like that. Fanny starts to enjoy herself, though, it being like her first play in life, which is so sad. Uh, and she's helping people rehearse, especially Rushworth, and also being guilted into doing needlework for Mrs. Norris. And then Mary finds her to ask if she can help her rehearse her love scene with Edmund before they do it for real. Except Edmund has the same idea and finds the two of them rehearsing. They may as well rehearse together, I guess. Big eponine feels here, guys. In the end, Mrs. Grant can't attend the big rehearsal because Dr. Grant is quote-unquote sick. And at everyone, even Edmund's beckoning... Fanny finally relents to read the part, except uh, 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 Sir Thomas has arrived. At first, Thomas is in great spirits, even being super weirdly affectionate for Fanny, who was like near fainting with dread at seeing him again. Lady Bertram is swept up in the good mood, too, until Sir Thomas comes across the theater in the billard room and Mr. Yates, who does not know when to shut up. As expected, Sir Thomas does not approve and plans for the play come apart. Among the young people, he's disappointed most in Edmund, who should know better, and who is at least contrite and explains his own part in it. Edmund also speaks up to defend Fanny. Mrs. Norris gets the brunt of his of Sir Thomas's chastisement, though. She definitely should have known better, but she gets out of it by being the most exhausting person ever. As life gets back to normal with Sir Thomas back, Mr. Yates plans on leaving soon, Mr. Rushworth returns to his home, and Mariah hopes Henry will finally declare his love to her before she has to marry that boring, miserable man. Henry announces he is to away to Bath with his uncle, unless the play is to be resumed, which is interesting and julia is so relieved to be rid of henry that she isn't even spiteful against her sister and finally uh mrs norris takes the curtain she made because it just so happens to be exactly what she wanted for the parsonage Whew. oh boy so we didn't get the play i guess not there's still a part of me that kind of keeps thinking it's gonna happen i don't know they you know henry tries to get in at the last minute you know like i could stay if the play will happen and and tom's like no the play is definitely not happening <laughs> tom just makes a big huge show of it in front of his dad being like no of course not why would it happen it wouldn't happen no that would be the wrong thing to do what a dweeb it is sort of entertaining how, how much mileage jane gets from from this play that never actually happens <laughs> That is, um, yeah, no, it's kind of amazing. So. Love triangle number one, or love square number one. Oh, right. It's, it is a square when you don't forget Rushworth. Rushworth. Why do I call him Rushfeld? I think I called him Rushfeld in the. <laughs> no, there's there's something anyway. so forgettable about him. Honestly, I, I had to double check. I Every time we do this, I have to double check whether his name is Rushfeld or Rushworth. Or Rushforth. My brain keeps putting an F. My brain keeps putting an F in there too. And he's so it's it's really unfortunate because not only is he's super boring, but he also is not a very good actor and like can't even remember his lines. 
And he's kind of a weasel. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite. Okay, so before we really dive in, one of my favorite things that he does is when Sir Thomas comes back, and um, and he's asking me like, "Oh, how are the Crawfords? You know, how are you guys getting along with them?" And Sir and Thomas just like, "Oh yeah, no, they're 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 fine. You know, we've been getting along with them really well." And Rutch worth jumps in and he's just like by the way you should probably mention that he's no taller than five eight you don't want your your dad expecting a better looking man or anything oh my god he's <laughs> so obsessed with how like, tall what? henry is it's like the only thing he feels like he can he definitely has over crawford it's amazing uh, there, there's a wonderful exchange that mary has with i think mrs grant when she says i rather wonder Julie is not in love with Henry, was her observation to Mary, is what Mrs. Mm -hmm. Grant says. And Mary says, I dare say she is, replied Mary coldly. I imagine both sisters are. Both? No, no, that must not be. Do not give him a hint of it. Think of Mr. Rushworth. Uh, You would better tell Miss Bertram to think of Miss Rushworth, Mary says. It may do her some good. I often think of Mr. Rushworth's property and independence and wish them in other hands, but I never think of him. (laughs) And it's just so mean. Uh, Mary's just really cold about it because she's like, he's, it's just sort of like a shame that this very wealthy man with this beautiful house is so awful and boring. (laughs) She's like, I often think about his property and how much money he has, but I don't think about him. I feel, well, I feel like we, she, she's just kind of talking about him the way that we do, or even just now when we're like, we don't actually ever remember what his name is until we look it up and double check. Um, And we feel bad for him, but at the same time, we're like, no one really likes you either. Yeah, he's more in the story as a, it's it's he's less in the story as a personality and more just there as sort of a foil because mm-hmm. Ma- Maria or Mariah is Mariah I, I think I asked you to read this episode I think we whether change or not, our mind every time yeah <laughs> whether or not she the, the reason that she can't be with Henry and the reason that there's drama is because she's engaged basically to this this man so mm-hmm. it, it matters that he's there for that reason but I don't think that it matters that we keep messing up his name at least that's what i'm going for yeah he's mainly just an obstacle who has a really nice mom mm-hmm. he does have a nice mom and a nice house and nice money which is really enough for some people that's enough he is a well-off white man with some status in england at a time when that kind of is all that matters mm-hmm. uh and yet somehow it is still not enough which is kind of funny to me yeah i there's a moment when um when i think at the end when henry is about to leave and he shows up at mansfield park to just sort of be like hey are we doing the play or not and maria maria watches him introduce himself to her father and she thinks to herself like oh like the man that i love is meeting my dad and i sort of was like the man that you love girl you like barely know him like what are you talking about you love him like i thought you guys were just like flirting (laughs) i know and um i love how we're just jumping around but the moment when sir thomas leaves and everyone is just super aware of what's happening and they're like everything is is super ruined and she's like i got to i got to go i got to go see my dad and julie is doing the same thing too she's very like screw all of this i got i'm going to do what i have to i have to live up to my expectations because right now i'm too angry at everyone anyways and both of them are like oh henry is still holding Mariah's hand against his chest 
very affectionately. And that probably means so much to those two sisters in very different ways. Like, what what are you doing? What is everyone doing? What are you doing? Yeah. That's all I have to ask any of them. No, it's, it's sort of messed up. Because the only reason that Henry likes Maria and Mariah in the first place is because... He's he likes her because he can't have her because he knows that she's the engaged one. So that was mm-hmm. sort of his reasoning for going after her in the first place. And now he's just having a good time and wants to do the play because it's fun and be around these these people. But then they're like, oh, we're not doing the play. He's like, okay, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to Bath. I'm, I'm not coming back now. And it's just really sad because the, the first part, Julia is the one sitting there like silently all upset and, and suffering. Like the language, mm-hmm. I mean, Fanny's kind of like hyperbolic in some of the things that she thinks, but she's always like, Julia's suffering. You know, she she's like, she like hates her sister now because, because of Henry and he's caused all these problems and now he's just going to like leave and, and go off and heedless about the mess that he's left behind. I'm pretty sure they call that love bombing. On top of that, he gets in between who admitted he gets in between these two sisters who probably had some things to work with or work through together anyways and probably never would. But now he's like so re- resolutely between the two of them. How are they? I don't know. It's just kind of sad to think that that they're forever going to be like whatever relationship they have after this is always going to be tainted or like it's just going to be different now. Mm-hmm. And it's Oh, so that's sad. so sad. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, um just to go back to what you're talking about with Mrs. Grant and and Mary, do you really think that Mrs. Grant believes that um Henry isn't in love in love with Mariah or do you think she's like in denial? I mean, I think everyone sort of sees what they – I think Mary has shown herself to be, like, the sharpest of all mm-hmm. of them. I really think that she's, like, clearly paying attention. And she's also been the one to have conversations with Henry where he specifically said, like, yeah, they're both fine, but, like, I'm going to be into this one because I, she's engaged and I like that. So she's been privy to his conversations and his – and that sort of thing. So she knows more than maybe the people that are just sort of watching – but it would be obvious to me because Julia is just like sitting there pouting in the corner. <laughs> so it's obvious that she's in love with Henry. But maybe it isn't as obvious that he's like playing with everybody's emotions necessarily other than to Mary, who's his sister and like confidant. Yeah. I'm not a fan of this Henry guy. He's not as clear cut a bad boy like your Willoughby's or the other guy. Who is his name? Wickham. Wickham. Are you talking yes, about thank you. I was like, W, W. <laughs> Um, but at the same time, I guess they weren't either until the end. I forgot. Can we swear on this podcast that I remember? Ah, uh, we do sometimes. Yes, mildly. So he's like a fuck boy, little bit, little bit. Yeah, a little more low key, but um, he's a rake. Would they call it a? a I've been reading a lot of romance, like old historical <laughs> romance novels. So I guess like I think the term is like a, a rake. Normally, rakish is someone you expect to be really incredibly attractive, but also you know better. That's right. Is it Henry was described as like not being attractive until they like spent time with him, yeah. and then they were like, "Oh my god, he's like so." Which cute. is <laughs> that's actually really interesting because like Willoughby was a handsome guy, he was a tall guy. Wickham was also a tall guy, and we just heard about how nice and pleasant his face was. Are you are you making this like theory that when Jane Austen says a, a character is attractive, it's just because they're tall? <laughs> <laughs> it's come up a few times, I think, by now. That's true. 
Uh, well, they're also like in the country, and there's not a ton of like eligible men around. So it might just be because like here's one that is giving us attention, and he's here by default. Mm-hmm. We're like interested in him, and he seems charming enough. He seems up for it, you know, for a good time, which they seem <laughs> to be a little lacking of in their their country estate. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this play is the the social engagement of the season. Which is interesting because no one's really supposed to be there except I think Tom was inviting everyone. Anyone in the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's sort of like what blew this out of proportion. Yeah, that didn't help with a that didn't help Edmund warm up to the idea. I what is it? I wanted to point out this or it was about Julia and how she's been going through all this. Cause like at some point she finally it's a sad moment, but I really feel for her when she re, re, you know really recognizes look. I do love this guy, but he clearly prefers my sister. Because the whole time they're going through all of this, it says, you know, Julia did suffer, however, though Mrs. Grant discerned it not, and though it escaped the notice of many of her own family likewise. She had loved, and she did love still, and she had all the suffering which a warm temper and a high spirit were likely to endure under the disappointment of a dear, though rational hope, with a strong sense of ill usage. Her heart was sore and angry, and she was capable only of angry consolation. The sister with whom she was used she was used to be on easy terms was now become her greatest enemy. Yeah, I really, like, hate that, you know, (laughs) like, just because of this guy who shows up. But, I mean, I don't take that away. Like, I really believe she feels that. Mm -hmm. It's it's so sad. And, like, and Fanny sees, um, like Mary, she sees a lot of things. She understands what's going on. Um, But at the same time, they were never close. Julie and Fanny were never close. Um, So Fanny is just like, "Mm, I'm just gonna, I'll just sympathize from a distance. We're not, we're not gonna try to connect or anything. I, it is really sad because I think like while they're going through this rehearsal, Fanny is mortified and upset, but then and so is Julia. But then, you know, Fanny, the great observer, it says Fanny saw and pitied much of this in Julia, but there was no outward fellowship between them. Julia made no communication, and Fanny took no liberties. They were two solitary sufferers, only connected by Fanny's consciousness. Maybe Julia is just really. You know, doing that thing where you're so self-centered in your own, like, suffering that you don't acknowledge anyone else's. Mm -hmm. And it's not like Fanny is known for showing on the outside what she's feeling on the inside. So I can't necessarily fault Julia for not, like, recognizing it. But because we're in Fanny's POV, we're, we're forced to recognize, like, oh... These two women, you know, they're both feeling, like, kind of sad and, and jilted. So yeah. they could, like, bond over it, but they're not going to. No, they're not going to. I mean, part – well, I mean, I can fault Julia a little bit because part of why Fanny doesn't share anything is because no one listens and pays attention to her anyways. But I do – yes, I, I do recognize you're, – you're, I think you're definitely right in, in Julia just probably not noticing anything outside of her own, like, tunnel vision of, of hurt – Come on, ladies. And then Maria gets sort of like a taste of her own medicine at the end. Like we talked about when Henry leaves, we get into her head about it. You know, you know, he was gone. He had touched her hand for the last time. He had made his parting bow and she might seek directly all that solitude could do for her. Henry Crawford was gone, gone from the house and when two days and within two hours afterwards from the parish and so ended all the hopes his selfish vanity had raised in Maria and Julie Bertram so it's just like a moment where Maria is like also now devastated and Julia is sort of like well that's that you know and then the author steps in to say 
his selfish vanity had raised the hopes and Julia was happy that he was gone. His presence was beginning to be odious to her. Mm-hmm. And she could pity her sister. So maybe is he gone for good? Like, is this the end of this love triangle square? No, probably not. He just seems like the type <laughs> who's just going to, like, wait. Probably, I mean, I assume not intentionally wait for them to, like, for their relationship to start to knit back together. And he'll be like, hello, I am here to ruin all your lives again. Even though Henry's name doesn't begin with W, he's definitely <laughs> been primed to be on the lookout for these these men that like to play with women's feelings and then leave with sort of without a care in the world. Mm-hmm. Plus, he's still so his his sisters are still so close to to him, and Mary's there, and Mrs. Grant is there, and they're there for a while. Mm-hmm. So he has reason to come back, and. In the way he suggested that, you know, if the play was still going, I could drop like 90% of my plans um, and be here for that. I don't think it'd be that hard for him to come back. Uh, Yeah. I did feel a tiny inkling of sad, of uh, sympathy for Mary when she realized like, oh, He's leaving, but he's not really going because he has to. I mean, he kind of does. But at the same time, he's got enough money and independence that he could just say no. But no, a lot of his plans are things that he wants to do. So are we? Are, have we wrapped up that love triangle? I mean, other than like this Rushworth dude, I think is not long for this world. Or do you think that Mariah Maria will end up with him? Like, and it's totally fine. Honestly, I don't know. I genuinely don't know because I have expected all to explode with Rushforth. But at the same time, he doesn't seem like the exploding type. Yeah, I feel like if he were just like a dash more self-aware, then he would have just cut his losses and left by now. But it seems like he's just missing a little bit of that self-awareness because he's just still around. Like I love this scene when, when, when... the da- the father shows up and everyone has clearly gotten this signal like we need to leave he's like what like what what's going on like he just he's the <laughs> one that like does it. i mean yates also doesn't get it but rushworth is is just uh it's it's a pretty funny scene oh my gosh this is how you know julia was like super in pain when she was just flirting endlessly with yates because he's honestly he's very quickly not a favorite <laughs> He's just like boring and stodgy and yeah, he's a weird sort of character. Is he is the p- whole point of him just to be like, let's do a play? Yeah, I think so. And then he gets disappointed when they don't get to do the play again. Maybe he should take the hint that <laughs> these people aren't the kind of people to do this play. And he's so pleased with himself and he had so many complaints about everyone's acting and he wasn't even the best one. Fanny thought that Henry was the best one. Oh yeah, he wasn't even like the top like four best ones. Like <laughs> Yeah. I love um I love the line so much when he when he realizes like the play isn't gonna happen. And it says Mr. Yates felt it as acutely as might be supposed. To be a second time disappointed in the same way it was an instance of very severe ill luck, and his indignation was such that had it not been for delicacy towards his friend and his friend's youngest sisters, he believed he should certainly attack the baronet on the absurdity of his proceedings. <laughs> like he really thought he'd be able to convince Sir Thomas. But at the same time, she's like, no, you know what? I, I <laughs> like, at least in the end, he's just like, maybe I should just not say anything, but I'm going to leave knowing that I was correct. 
Uh, it's 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 probably the most absurd and the and the funniest part of the whole play thing. <laughs> this like I was just like I wasn't able to put on the play. Like let's try it again, and then he gets his hopes up, and then it's dashed again. Just like give up or like find maybe actual play people to put on your play. <laughs> maybe I loved how um how Sir Thomas knew the name and and knew his like reputation and his people and knew him as one of uh, Tom's like particular friends and. And thus already knows that this person is unwelcome yeah. in their lives. <laughs> you really just have to give it to Austin. She's so good at these characters that are just like, they're basically caricatures, but mm-hmm. you dislike them immediately, and yet they are the most amusing. Yeah, it's been sort of, I mean, this book really does feel different than the other books that we've read previously for a mm-hmm. number of reasons. I think it's just like funnier. Everyone feels like a really melodramatic at times. And everyone feels sort of, you said farcical earlier, and I think that's really accurate. And this play is like really a meta version of that. Like the stuff that goes wrong within the play is like occurring outside and it it makes everyone just feel like caricatures. Mm -hmm. In not a bad way. I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been a lot of, it's been a fun um, change from the previous two books, especially because uh, some of the earlier chapters, I started to get a little nervous of how like moral mm-hmm. uh, our two mains were, Edmund and Fanny, and Fanny being, you know, such a internal, seemingly weak character, like as a person, not as a created character. So it's been, it's brought a lot of nice balance, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. And because we don't really get less of that morality i mean i guess we sort of do from edmund but we, we get less of that from fanny who sort of is like vindicated in the end for being so um stick in the mud <laughs> of over the play um I, it's also just like i mean i think this is probably a, a thing in in austin's time mm-hmm. but it's just like here's a bunch of like idle rich like they don't really have anything else in their life to <laughs> do so this is like this is all they had yeah yeah this is their hardship yeah like none of them are like there's a lot of like hyperbolic statements like this was the worst she'd ever felt and like this is like the worst thing that could have ever happened it's like it's a play you guys like nobody has any perspective i know uh this conversation i've had a couple of times in the past week since the um the harry megan oprah where a lot of people are like why are we just like listening yes. to a bunch of rich people complain and fight i'm like right now this is a hundred percent what i want i don't want to keep hearing about the news i already deal with all this like pandemonium crap at work every day i just want to hear and complain about some rich old royals no and i i read a lot of um romance Mm -hmm. novels and not only like modern romance but i've been reading way more um, like Regency romance and historical romance. You know, if you stop and think a lot of times, you're like, well, what do these people do? (laughs) What are their jobs? And like, none of them have jobs. But like, do I want to read about endless parties? Or do I want to read about someone like going to work every day? (laughs) It's like, I want to read about endless parties. I don't want life right now. Right now, I just want people who get what they deserve. And a lot of the times, it's going to be something good. People just getting what they want. Especially in Austin's book. So it's it's good we're covering yes. them. But. Uh, it just so happens though it's one of the more gray, complicated Austin novels. I know. We really uh, have great time. Oh, we're so good at it. Okay. So we have Edmund and we have Fanny. And we've talked a lot about our very complicated feelings about Mary. 
And I've been having mm-hmm. this conversation a lot in general. We It's something we've been talking about on um, Still Great Bob with the, the main characters, especially the male characters of Mad Men, of people who are not completely good, not completely bad. And how we feel about how we feel about the character as like a comp- component of the story, and how we feel about the character as like an individual. Mary might be one of my favorites, actually. I think across the three books in both realms. Yeah, she's a fascinating character, and one that I don't think I can really dis- like disassociate my modern mm-hmm. take on her from maybe like what Austin wants me to to see but I, I I will say I think the way that we ended on her last time we spoke was very much like yeah she's sort of like self-centered and has a lot of these issues but at the end of the the chapters that we read she was really nice to Fanny and then Edmund brings that up in these chapters for that we read for this recording and Fanny sort of realizes that being nice to Fanny endeared herself even Mm -hmm. more to Edmund. So that felt even calculated in itself. But then again, Fanny's really jealous. So I think she's viewing everything from that Mm -hmm. lens. So I don't even know if it's fair to view, only view Mary being nice to Fanny as something that she did is calculating in order to get Edmund's attention. Like maybe it had had that effect, but... She was also just being nice uh, because she was recognizing that the situation was unfair and ridiculous. So it's complicated. It really is. I like her too. I like her too. Because if if we didn't see, well, (laughs) what was uh, Lady Catherine's uh, daughter's name? Anne? Anne, yeah. I mean, Anne was the sickly daughter who was supposed to marry Darcy. Basically, that's kind of what Fanny is, isn't it? She's got, I mean... Oh, my God. Oh, no. Fanny. Oh, no. I was like, where are you going with this? And then you, like, hit it. And no, I was like, this oh, is, no. hold on. This is only just hitting me right now. I'm like... Okay, go for it. From an outside perspective, like, we've said this multiple times. You've said this multiple times. Mary is 100% the character that we would relate to from a different perspective as modern readers. It's just that we're seeing it from a different side now. We're seeing it from someone who is a, the complete opposite and has some moral core of her own um, and has her own opinions that she sticks to. And in a lot of ways, she's probably more relatable than I would like to admit versus versus Mary. Mm-hmm. So uh, now I'm going to have to sit and think about this for a while. So, so Fanny and I, we, we've, you know, we've talked a lot how Fanny has gotten on our nerves and how Fanny's, but th- these chapters endeared me a little bit more to Fanny because a lot of what she endures now is really mortifying actually actually from my perspective and not just because she's sort of treated like Cinderella and you know made to do all the chores and and all these objectively like very bad things but this like the scene where and I'm jumping a little bit but the scene where uh, Mary comes to go over her lines with Fanny and then Edmund does the same thing and then they all end up practicing their lines together and basically it's this really intense scene where the the people confess their love to one mm-hmm. for one another so Fanny has told us in her inner monologue that she's you know nervous and also excited for the scene because she's curious about what it'll be like on stage to watch these two people who have feelings for each other actually confess fake feelings for each other and Fanny at this point, I don't know if she's aware of her feelings for Edmund. I feel like they're, they're, they were a little bit less subconscious mm-hmm. than previously. And she's very upset. And it, I think it says she's agitated and jealous. So she's somewhat cognizant of these feelings. And it just felt like a like very much like 80s, 90s 
teen rom-com. You know, you have, like, the nerdy girl in the glasses or whatever, like, watching the handsome jock or whatever, like, make googly Mm. eyes at, like, the pretty, you know, whatever cheerleader or something. It was the first time I really, really felt bad for Fanny, having to sit there watching them read these lines, knowing that she had a crush on one of them. It was was really intense for me, and I just kept picturing it in a a more modern setting and how I would, like, instantly relate to it. We also get a little bit of fire from her too because she's so so nervous about facing everyone and afraid that they're going to try to bully her into being in the play again but when she thinks that mary has weaponized her to her to as a way to keep mm-hmm. edmund on the line she's just like you know what too jealous not to be afraid of facing anyone i'm just gonna go on there and just be grumpy about it <laughs> and i was like good that's sort of that's a form of strength good for you it, the the these chapters open to with this like horrible scene that made me think extremely less of Edmund where he basically says like the only way I can fight this is from within like I have to be an actor and I have to join and Finney's like but do you have to join like really <laughs> are you sure and and at the end of the chapter and I want to go into this scene because it's like pretty awful but and she thinks to herself could it be possible, you know, could Edward be, Ed- Edmund be so inconsistent? Was he not deceiving himself? Was he not wrong? But then she goes, ah, oh, alas, it was Miss Crawford's doing. So she, like, doesn't even believe that Edmund could be, could, like, step a foot out of line. Like, this must be Mary's doing. Mm. So it's some, like, jealous paranoia, which we've all been there. But, like, Edmund, Edmund wants to, to act. He wants to be fun with the young people. And Fanny's, like, <laughs> so horrified. And I'm horrified, too, because you think that Edmund's the only one with any sense then he's like, no, I must be a note. I must be in the play. I'm going to protect like, the family. Here we go. Like, if you, like, don't use the, like, the auspices of protecting the family. If you want to perform with your friends, like, just <laughs> say that. Oh, Edmund. Um, I think it's a good moment of reminding us that Edmund is also a young adult, just like the others, for as much as he's got some sense of what's morally right. Mm-hmm. He's also still very much a person. And it's it's actually really hard for me to fault him either because I don't think he's doing anything wrong. And certainly Fanny isn't actually entitled to him. And he's never like, unlike Henry, he's not making it seem like he's into one woman, but then putting it out there for another one. No, that's a really good point. I mean, and again, like perspective, you know, like I, I want, like, let them put on a play. Like, who cares? I mean, I get, like, I guess, you know, this could be somewhat if i were to to put this in context of a more modern time it, if i was writing this like alternative universe fanfic it would be <laughs> like a high school a catholic high school putting on spring awakening i don't know but that's like so weird because i like the arts and freedom of the art you know i don't know i'm going down a rabbit hole but i, I want them to form the play if they want and so it's like awkward that I think we're supposed to agree with the protagonist that they shouldn't be putting on this play. So you're right to think from Edmund's perspective that, like, why shouldn't he get to join and, like, have fun? But at the end, they all get proven wrong and they don't get to put Mm -hmm. on their play. Because, I mean, even Fanny's having fun joining in and her not joining in. And she's even rehearsing with Rushworth. Like, who wants to do that? But even she's there. She learns everyone's lines, which I think is really funny. Just with uh, our all our talk about how complicated and shades of gray that we're getting with all these characters, I do like um, the perspective that comparing this love triangle with the other one gives us. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm noticing the moments of that Mary gets on her own. Like we don't actually need to hear about her talking about her brother with Mrs. Grant and how you know she's commenting on 
like maybe I think both of them are into Henry because we're about how Mary, you know, is seen by Fanny as manipulating Edmund. I think it just reminds us that like, no, she's actually an aware person who doesn't want to see people get played and get hurt. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's like a contrast between um, her and her brother, or at least I hope so. That's how yeah. I want to take it. I mean, I know we're like Team Mary and everything, but yeah, I just, I, I'm curious. I mean, we still have like a lot of book left, so I'm sort of curious, like Mary, like what if Mary murders someone in like the next chapter? You know, like... <laughs> Because Fanny really is supposed to be our protagonist. She's supposed to be the one that we're rooting for. So yeah. I don't know if it's – if maybe Austin wants us to be like, Mary's not so bad. Like, Mary's fine and then is just going to, like, throw a curveball at us or something. I don't know. And I feel like I say this every single time we record. It's like I don't – I don't know what's supposed to happen now. I think I do, but I'm not – I'm never – quite fully sure which is exciting it's a lot of fun that's true um, do you think edmund is trying to make fanny jealous by coming to her and being like this is a good idea right like i should do the play like he's coming with for, to her at the beginning of these chapters oh. for you know he has this plan he's like i i'm gonna step in and i'm gonna play this role like what do you think this is a good idea right like i i i trust you i i trust what you think and she gets like all excited for like a brief moment that he like cares about what she thinks mm-hmm. And then later, like, he doesn't know that Mary is practicing lines with her. He wants to go practice lines with her in a scene where the characters declare their love for each other. I don't know. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with this take on it, but I think it may be something to think about. If I were to fully ship them, this would be my (laughs) So, I definitely saw it more as, like, Fanny being a safe person for them both to come to in this time of hell yeah Mm -hmm. and i don't i mean if i read it differently from that i would see i think i would see edmund coming to fanny about that first part less to like make her jealous but maybe as like a test of like does she actually like me this much because if if she does maybe i might consider my feelings to marry um i don't know if it would necessarily be a jealousy thing Mm -hmm. but maybe just like as a as a little check that like just to be sure that we're okay Mm -hmm. and i don't need to like think about it i can just go for that one right now am i wrong in thinking that we don't get that much internal internal life of edmund no i don't think we do i mean he shows a little bit of backbone earlier when mary calls him out for being a clergy and we get sort of his impassioned take on that and we get the sense that he is probably a better he would have been a better first son than Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do get when when Sir Thomas arrives and, like, shuts down the proceedings and it tells Edmund, basically, that he's really disappointed him in, in him. There's uh, the beginning of – I forget what chapter it is. Oh, I think it's the beginning of chapter 20. And it, we're in Edmund's POV a little bit as he defends himself about the play – um, he says, you know, he was anxious while vindicating himself to say nothing unkind of the others. Um, and he want, and he goes out of his way to vindicate Fanny and be mm-hmm. like, Fanny was not. She was the only one who, you know, should be not to blame. And, and so we, we get in his mind a little bit there. But I think you're absolutely right. We don't – it's not like we get him anything about who he's interested in other than what he tells us. Because he's constantly talking to Fanny about how he thinks that Mary is like – very beautiful and like fun and charismatic um but we are not really inside his head in those moments he's just mm-hmm. explicitly telling fanny that which is why it could be what red is yeah is you know seeing if she's jealous or not but that's kind of like a 
a mean thing to do and not necessarily something that is in the character of his that we've seen but something to think about definitely no i i think it makes me want to pay more attention to to how he acts because it is a lot more ambiguous the the general narration is a lot less omniscient as we've seen in previous books so um good shout something to pay attention to and to think about yeah but uh uh so all of this is for not because sir thomas comes <laughs> in uh the most dramatic fashion ever like i know in previous conversations we've had that your books that you've been reading don't necessarily have volume one volume two volume three mm-hmm. but in the book that i read um chapter 18 is the last chapter in volume one oh. and the last sentence is my father has come he's in the hall at this moment and then chapter 19 is the start of the second volume which is um all this stuff with sir thomas so it's sort of interesting the way that there's like a delineation there i i loved it i love that moment it was everything came to such a screeching halt mm-hmm. uh and I could, you could just, like, see everyone's faces in your mind. Just like that, oh, that general, like... <laughs> the record scratch. Yes, exactly. Uh, and what 19 starts with, like, how's the con- consternation of the party to be... to bleh. Chapter 19 starts with, how is the consternation of the party to be described? To the greater number, it was a moment of absolute horror. Sir Thomas in the house. I'm like, this is exactly how I want to be welcomed. Oh god, they're so upset. The 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 horror of they're, him showing up again. Yeah. And the only reason why Julia is able to like be the person to be like, I guess I'll do my obligation and greet my father is because she's so mad at her sister and at Henry. Um and that's the that's the moment that kind of breaks the curse of um both the men who are supposed to be in charge of the family while father is away are like, oh, right, we got we got to go to. We got to go to. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, and the way Fanny, in particular, her uh. inner monologue, the way she describes him coming back, she goes, you know, her agitation and alarm exceeded all that was endured by the rest. She was nearly fainting. All her former habitual dread of her uncle was returning. And with it, compassion for him and for almost every one of the party on the development before him. And it just, it was just the way that she describes mm-hmm. him coming back is really really upsetting and doesn't necessarily mesh with what i recognized uh the relationship between them was like Mm -hmm. i knew fanny wasn't included in family stuff but the fear that she feels in that moment like i don't know if she's being melodramatic or like or what the deal is i mean eventually he like embraces her and kisses her and she's like oh he's like really happy or whatever but that moment i was really sort of worried about what Mm -hmm. the relationship is yeah looking back on it now it may be her own anxiety of like Mm -hmm. how he's gonna handle the whole play situation but it Mm -hmm. was so stark and um they all like the the kids all go to greet him and what was it? Uh, Fanny was left only with the Crawfords and Mr. Yates. She had been quite overlooked by her cousins. And as her own opinion of her claims on Sir Thomas's affection was much too humble to give her any idea of classing herself with his children, she was glad to remain behind and gain a little breathing time. That whole section combined, you're like, what? Why are you so afraid of him? Because it isn't immediately clear that it's, you know, it's the play. It just seems like the relationship they had before now has always been not just cold, but like, genuinely scary mm-hmm. and as you said he, he you know he he holds her he calls her you know his my little fanny and kisses her and acts so please and talks about how much she's grown and asks about her family and asks about her brother specifically 
He had never been so kind, so very kind to her in his life. His manner seemed changed. His voice was quick from the agitation of joy. And all that had been awful in his dignity seemed lost in tenderness. The whole time I'm thinking everything about this, especially compared to her reaction, seems incredibly sus. I do not trust anything that's happening right now. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, we've been told that everybody's like operating fine without him and Mm -hmm. that we don't like really care for him. But then Fanny's reaction is so upsetting. And then he comes home and he's so happy to see his family because he's been like away in this treacherous journey. Like people die frequently, like going to check their farms or or like plantations. And he, he comes back and he's just like so happy to be home. That it's like incredibly relatable. Mm-hmm. There's like a line that he says in, uh, he says, I think we are a great deal better employed sitting comfortably here among ourselves and doing nothing. <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> like, you know who says that? I think Rushworth oh, says that. Rushworth says that. Oh, and, so here and I am. Sir, Tom, Sir Thomas agrees wholeheartedly. He's See, like, I'm so glad someone agrees with me. Here I am, like, agreeing with like the two most like boring, awful characters <laughs> in the book. But like, it's sort of true. Like, yeah, like he, I just want to go and like sit home and do nothing sometimes. I know. Incredibly <laughs> relatable. And Fanny noticed that he's thinner. He's got like a more, like, I guess, weathered looking face than she remembered him. And she started, she actually seemed to like feel more affection to him being like oh okay he's just been through stuff i get it now Mm -hmm. and he's so chatty and so happy to talk to everyone he had the right to be the talker then the delight of his sensations and being again in in his own house in the center of his family after such a separation made him communicative and chatty in a very unusual degree he was ready to give every information as to his voyage and answer every question of his two sons almost before it was put he was even nice about rushworth he's just like there is nothing disagreeable with this man which just reminds us that uh, Sir Thomas isn't super paying attention. No, and he like they like they sort of like broach the topic of the play really slowly to him, and he's like, okay, like whatever. And then like as the magnitude of what they, I mean, they hire like a painter, a set designer. Like this isn't just some like fun play. They were like going overboard with it. And as Sir Thomas begins to notice it, like slowly he starts to get like matter and matter. Yeah. That was actually like a fun build because they're at yeah. first it's like, oh, no, we'll talk about it tomorrow. And Tom gives all these reasons. She's like, well, we were just like we were so bored because the weather was terrible and we haven't really seen anyone. And basically we had to put this play together because like I barely even picked up a gun in this whole time you've been gone. And and the pheasants, we would never shoot your pheasants. And I was like, oh, no. And he goes, where is my billiard table? <laughs> And he's just like, all right, I'm going to go sleep. And he's like, why Why is this room completely lit? Where's my billard table? You're like, oh. And, oh, he heard someone talking in a loud accent. He didn't, he did not know the voice more than talking, almost hallooing. And I, I love this word so much, hallooing. We should use hallooing more often. We should. We should. And I, it's 100% the kind of thing that I would expect Yates to be doing on his own. <laughs> The, 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 Yates is an annoying character, but his interactions with Sir Thomas are hysterical. He goes, we bespeak your indulgence, you understand, as young performers, we bespeak your indulgence. And he goes, my indulgence shall be given, but without any other rehearsal, which is just like, ah, it's a fire line from Sir Thomas. Oh my God. So good. And every time, like, someone would get, like, a foothold of trying to turn the conversation back, Yates is just like, oh, hello, I'm going to keep talking. No, don't. Don't. This is not your forte. 
winning people over is not your thing. And I love how later he's like, but there was something in Sir Thomas when they sat around the same table, which made Mr. Yates think it was wiser to let him pursue his own way and feel the follow of it without opposition. He had known many disagreeable fathers before and often been stuck with the inconveniences they occasioned, but never so in the whole course of his life had he seen one of the class so unintelligibly immoral, so infamously tyrannical as Sir Thomas. <laughs> so that's uh, quite the line there. It's a little dramatic, but he is an actor. He is an actor. I feel like we we all like definitely know people like, <laughs> like Yates. Like there's always that one person in your theatrical performance who just goes extremely overboard. Yeah. And as an as like I guess like moral and scary as Sir Thomas is, the interactions between him and Yates are really entertaining and then the interactions with him and Mrs. Norris are hysterical. Oh it's just like a block of text of Mrs. Norris trying to like explain herself. She's like, well, oh my God. The, there was like cold outside. And I was like reading this and I was like, my eyes were glazing over. I was like, <laughs> Mrs. Norris, like you need to stop. Yeah. So like you said, for as moral as like Sir Thomas is, I and for as scared as everyone was when he arrived, I was very struck by how measured he was in his in his reaction because at first like you know the thing was everything was building and then he was clearly like disapproving and the play's not going to happen and everyone he kind of almost didn't have to say it and everyone's just like yeah cool and he's like yeah so everyone recognizes their fault i don't have to go after the kids really maybe against edmund because i do have expectations of him knowing better and even to yates who he very clearly doesn't like he's just like okay you're going to go soon. But with Mrs. Oh, Mrs. Norris. Honestly, it's ridiculous. I dislike her so much, but I don't know what I would do with myself if she wasn't in this book. She really is a character. Like, she's just like, you totally get, like, you can pick, you know what she'll do in like any situation. Mm -hmm. Like, she gets called out and then just proceeds to just like be so annoying that he, <laughs> everybody checks out and is like, fine, whatever. It's amazing. When well, first when um Sir Thomas arrives, she's so annoyed that she didn't have anything to do by his arrival. Not just like the fact that he's there doesn't bother her, it's the fact that I forgot that. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> like she she hates the fact that um she wasn't able to be like the one to announce that he arrived. You know, he's just like just told the butler and then went immediately to the drawing room and someone was just like, Hey, just let everyone know I was here. She couldn't be that person. She was really... Oh, and so when Sir Thomas goes to talk to her, she was... She didn't know how to react because either she admits uh, Mrs. Norris was a little confounded and as nearly being silent as ever she had been in her life. For she was ashamed to confess having never seen any of the impropriety which was so glaring to Sir Thomas and would not have admitted that her influence was insufficient, that she might have talked in vain. She could not admit that she's so unimportant that, you know, if she had said something about the play and disagreed, that they would listen to her. And I love that. Yeah, she's really stuck here. She has, like, no options. So instead, <laughs> she just says, but I set up Maria and Mr. Rushworth, so clearly I'm a genius. And then she just, like, proceeds to talk his ear off. <laughs> He says, Mr. Thomas gave up the point, foiled by her evasions, disarmed by her flattery, and was obliged to rest satisfied with the conviction that where the present pleasure of those she loved was at stake. So she just, like talks and talks and talks and big like has all this flattery and evades the point and he just like gives up having the conversation which is sort of like masterful as much yeah. as it is annoying 
It's so annoying. It's in, it's infuriating the way she can control a conversation like that. Not through like masterful skill, just by sheer persistence in her annoyingness. This And the story she talks about uh, how they all go to Southerton and how she's like made a connection with the Rushworths and really like cemented that relationship between uh, Mariah and Rushworth, which is from our perspective, hilarious. She talks about how hard the winter, you know, it was winter and it was so hard for all of us to make the trip, but I made that trip happen, even though the poor old coachman was just like in so much pain out of his great love and kindness because he was like suffering like rheumatism and like pain. He was in pain that she quote unquote cured him of uh, and is fine now in the warmer wet temperatures. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. He goes, and I caught a dreadful cold that I did not regard. My object was accomplished in the visit. Like, it's just like, wow, the sacrifices you made putting everyone at risk. Way to go. Just laying it on very thick. Oh but, my God. But she wins in the end, I guess. So, <sighs> Mrs. Norris. And not only that, she got a free curtain out of it. That's true. I mean, you know, ah. Oh. I still don't like her, but I can appreciate it, I guess. And and I think you're right that Sir Thomas really, he seems like more upset that he just wanted to like come home to his family in his bed and he wasn't able to do that because of the play and then realizes exactly what the play is and gets like more upset. Mm-hmm. And there's a funny line too. Uh, Sir Thomas was in hopes that another day or two would suffice to wipe away every outward memento of what had been, even to the destruction of every unbound copy of Lover's Vows in the house, for he was burning all that met his eye. So you even like follow him around the house, like getting copies of the play and just like burning them. <laughs> He's so mad. It's so mad. Well, for some reason, I completely missed that part. It's so low key, but it's undeniable. It seems like they all live in like a quiet terror of him. There's nothing explicit to be afraid of. Um, but he has his own way of us because before it just always seemed like he was like a bit of a pushover the way Mrs. Norris talked to him and talked him into adopting Fanny. But I think we're getting a good idea of who he is as a as the head of this estate and head of the family, where there's a of of how he is uh, exerts his authority it's i don't want to say it's kind mm-hmm. but i do i do think they all probably live in in a little bit of fear and dread of him yeah it's 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 interesting the way that we've you know not on purpose necessarily but the the way that these chapters end uh, um it's a little bit after my volume at one ends but i really think we're at a, a turning point here now that sir thomas is back i think like him being away made everything seem a lot more like lawless and fun and now with his return we're really getting a sense of like okay things are going to be different from now like henry's le- like his player has left the board um we still have mary there but we have you know mariah that she's gonna have to end up with rushworth but then sir thomas comes along and he doesn't necessarily love rushworth edmund will have to take orders now that he's back so with this chapter we're really coming to the end of like sort of the frivolity and and fun and now it we have a a new conflict starting i sort of get the sense Mm -hmm. and and the differentiation between the the different volumes is really interesting because we haven't gotten that much of him so it's just another way to, I guess it's just more for us to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, I think we really covered all the characters. Mm-hmm. One thing I did forget, I, I just wanted to just touch on yeah. it lightly, was 
Miss is was Fanny's East Room. Oh, and her, how her her little her little white attic where she slept in, and and which is like barely any space. One, it made me really sad when they're like, "Well, she didn't have it in her to like ask for more spacious accommodations when she first moved in," and it was like she was nine and underfed and really scared. So of course she wasn't going to ask. And I love the idea of her finding her own place and people just like quietly acquiescing and being like, yeah, that's that's just Fanny's place now. Except for Miss Norris, who basically acts like they're doing her a favor, but please don't make sure that no one's putting like a fire in there or anything for her. If there's going to be a fire in there, it has to be for like an actual member of the family, which Mrs. Norris is related to everyone about as much as she is, as Fanny is. And uh, what's it? Mrs. Norris, uh, having stipulated for there never being a fire in it on Fanny's account, was tolerable, resigned to her having the use of what nobody else wanted, though the terms in which she sometimes spoke of the indulgence seemed to imply that it was the best room in the house. Of course, because Fanny really can't have nice things. Um, Do you know what this scene reminded me of? Like, I was humming this song in my head the whole time. Um, You know when Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella and she Mm -hmm. has my own little corner? I'm not going to sing it. But uh, check out the Brandy version. Um, but it's it's um, I know we've talked about Fanny sort of being like a Cinderella character before, and how she has her you know her own little corner with her own little chair, and that's where she can be whatever she wants to be. Mm-hmm. And this is Fanny's little corner. This is her space. Um, and we get a lot of people invading that space in these chapters, but I'm really glad that you brought up this little space because it made me think of that song, which oh, I'm never not, which I'm never not moment. mad about. I love that people have generally been respecting that space too. And now I'm thinking about how like Edmund was often welcome there, but now it's being intruded by their weird little love triangle-ish thing. Ooh, no. I know. Doesn't Mary at one point says to her like, He's like talking about Edmund and then says something like, well, you don't think about him like that because you guys are cousins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, One of her reasons for why she asks Fanny is because like, oh, you're cousins and you kind of look a little bit like him. Yeah, it's like <laughs> very awkward. Oh, no. It's cringy. Because again, we mostly see things kind of through through Fanny's perspective. It's hard to know if she's really, if it, if she means it or if it's just part of her little ploys. Ooh. That's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. Because we seem to like Mary so much, I am most curious about her character. And and I not and I don't think we can even blame ourselves for this mm-hmm. because Austin has primed us to like these like sassy, take no prisoners, women characters in her previous books, which mm-hmm. isn't to say that I don't like this other view of femininity and womanhood that Jane is exploring. Uh-huh. But I am sort of curious, like, are we going to subvert things here? Like, how is this going to go? Mm-hmm. Is the book going to end with, um, you know, Mary finding her Prince Charming and Fanny and Edmund, like, and everyone, like, happily ever after? Like, I don't I don't know. Because right now, one of them is going to be hurt. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it to be Fanny, but even though I am sort of rooting for Mary. So I'm curious how it's going to go. I mean, I still, I want, I want good things for Mary. I just, just don't know if it's Edmund. Yeah. No, I don't really see Mary and Edmund as having a ton of, like, chemistry or whatever, but um, maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe the opposite, it's an opposite track thing in a good way. That's true. Uh. But I, I don't think we're supposed to ship that. I think it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess we have all that to look forward to next time. Did you have anything else that you wanted to, to bring up? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a really tiny moment in the the book where Fanny talks to Sir Thomas about his return um, from Antigua, and she asks him explicitly about the slave tra- the slave trade. And it's it's not meant as a hostile question, but I went down a rabbit hole uh, about this reference to the slave trade, which was sort of um, the controversy around it, and Britain was peaking around the time that the novel takes place. The, this book really has a just a couple of minor references to uh, the slave trade, and it's sort of interesting that one occurs here. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of information and a lot of history that you know we're not really taught that I personally wasn't taught, but I think you know Sir Thomas is involved in a very morally conflicted business. And I think this is something that Jane Austen is aware of. I guess she had a lot of links to the slave trade based on um, her family members and was connected to them. Mm -hmm. And she also wrote in one of her letters to her sister, Cassandra, um, about how much she loves the writing of Thomas Clarkson, who was a very famous abolitionist at the time. Mm. And so a lot of people think that she's slipping in these references to the slave trade as a saying that it's bad basically but a lot of the scholarship is really contradictory around this point but um, but it's it's something that seems sort of different than we've seen in the previous books because like we talked about it it's it would be very difficult for a land owning somewhat wealthy man in this period of time in Britain to have made their money from something in no way connected to the slave trade that's very i mean i was gonna say cool that's yeah (laughs) that's obviously appalling but um no that is so interesting and i appreciate your your bringing that up so often especially whenever just whenever we we talk about sir thomas and antigua and everything because it's not something that you often hear people talk about it at the forefront when it comes to Jane Austen. I mean, a lot of it being like a female romance, but actually also satire. I love it. I love it. It's a it's a conversation I definitely am looking forward to seeing more of. Yeah, no, I, I went on quite the, the rabbit hole of research. So if you're all interested, um, there are a lot of articles written about Jane Austen um, talking about this. But I, I mean, I don't see a ton of evidence in the text that they're saying that Sir Thomas feels any way about it or any morally conflicted way but her bringing it up seems in a way telling that she's like bringing people's awareness to like mm-hmm. this is how he makes his money he's having problems yeah because i mean they rare she rarely brings up the the servants but yeah so this is at least getting at least as much attention of that of like this is a part of of life you're just not paying attention to it mm-hmm. but yeah i think uh just, I think maybe we'll get like another small reference to it later, but worth a worth a Google, I guess. <laughs> okay, so yes. Before we go throughout this whole book, I've been remiss like calling things like our Jane Austen Burns because they haven't necessarily been super like Bernie, but mm-hmm. I think appropriate to Edmund are moments of throwing shade, perhaps. Oh, which I okay. think um, Jane Austen does superbly well. Just how how she like low key clearly judges some some people, and I, in my mind, I like to think she's thinking of particular people in mind when she makes these comments. Do you do you have anything like that? I do have one. I mean, I, I highlighted a couple of things that I liked, but I think my favorite is in, and it's funny because I think you're definitely accurate because I don't think mine is from Fanny's 
perspective. And I don't think Fanny necessarily would mean anything as to be a burn, but I thought this was sort of funny and is a definitely a shady comment. In chapter 19, Fanny thinks about Sir, Sir Thomas being all nice to her. His kindness altogether was such as made her reproach herself for loving him so little. Yeah, that's pretty good. There was a lot of moments of Fanny being like, oh, I kind of feel bad for like saying no to the play, for instance. And like maybe I'm being too up my own butt for that. And there was a, I think another moment that I can't bring to mind. There's some moment, um, and I feel like it's a little bit like this is how gaslighting works. But there's some moments where she's just like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have believed this thing or or felt this certain way. And I just I felt bad for her. Like I do most of the time when we bring her up. Oh, like when Fanny was watching them rehearse and she was admiring Henry, uh, Henry's work, uh, she says, you know, Mr. Crawford was considerably the best actor of all. He had more confidence in Edmund, more judgment than Tom, more talent and taste than Mr. Yeats. She did not like him as a man, but she must admit him to be the best actor. <laughs> it's like, great, cool, cool. Let's see, I had, a, I think, one or two more. Oh, when Sir Thomas meets Rushworth and Rushworth says basically what what Sir Thomas was feeling about the play you know the whole like we're better off just sitting and doing nothing which Sir Thomas is like that's what I like to hear he he was aware that he must not expect a genius in Mr. Rushworth but as a well-judging steady young man blah 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 it's like yeah that's that's cool that's good I like it I like the subtle shade throwing no I like that you called it shade I don't know do you want to rename our our section or do we just want to Keep it at Burns. Maybe just for this book. Okay. We'll see how it goes from Jane here. Austen's shade throwing. Jane Austen's shadiness. I don't know. We'll work on it. If anyone has okay. any good ideas, please let us know. Yes. And how can people reach us? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, you can find us on thedailynightly.com. You can also find us on Instagram at thedailynightly, which I not that regularly post a lot of memes that make me laugh. Uh, but you can also email us at thedailynightly at gmail.com. We have gotten a few in the past and they've been so delightful. And it's been, we'd really just love to hear what you guys think about this book because it is so much different than I think your typical, what people expect from Jane Austen. No, absolutely. And be sure to rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, Annie, is there anything else you want to plug while we're here? I suppose uh, that you can also find me on my other podcast, Still Great Bob, which is a Mad Men rewatch podcast uh, with some friends of ours, Matt and Melissa, who are just wonderful, delightful people. And uh, yeah. Cool. Yes, so next time we are going to cover chapters 21 through 26 when we will see the fallout uh, that Sir Thomas' uh, arrival brings to our Motley crew at Mansfield Park. Uh, So come along with us. Uh, I'm excited to to find out what happens. Oh, it's going to be... I don't know what it's going to be, actually. I have literally no idea. I know. No, but that makes it exciting. Yes, I can't wait to talk about it with you. So until next time, guys. Happy reading. Happy reading.